Hello, welcome to a Rock or Something podcast. I am specialist Linwood Thomas, and today's topic is blood drives and blood services. Uh, today I'm joined with two guests. Uh, can you introduce yourselves, please? I'm Sergeant First Class Tracy Banta with uh, Debt One Company C, First 171 Aviation Regiment Medevac Unit, stationed here in Kosovo. And my name's Captain Oliver. Uh, I am the Brigade Surgeon for uh, Regional Command East, part of Task Force Med. So we'll start today with uh, just a few stats about um, blood drives and blood services per redcrossblood.org. Um, so one blood donation can potentially save up to three lives. Um, every two seconds, someone in the U.S. needs blood, um, which comes up to approximately 36,000 units of red blood cells uh, that are needed every day in the U.S. Less than 38% of the population is eligible to give blood or platelets. Blood and platelets cannot be manufactured. They can only come from volunteer donors. Uh, sickle cell patients can require blood transfusions throughout their lives, and people with cancer need blood as well during their chemotherapy treatment. Uh, medical professionals refer to those with O-negative blood as universal donors, excuse me, universal donors, because their red cells can be given to patients and, of all blood types. Uh, because only 7% of people in the U.S. are type O-negative, it's always in great demand and often in short supply. Um, and finally, about 45% of people in the U.S. have group O positive or negative blood, and the proportion is higher among Hispanics and African Americans. Um, so for the both of you, aside from the statistics, um, what is the significance of blood donation? It's very simple. Um, blood saves lives. There's just, that's the, the bottom line to it. Uh, you know, we all make blood in our own bodies, but if you're dying because you've lost blood, there's no way to replace it fast enough other than by giving someone someone else's blood. I would totally agree. I mean, not only are you obviously losing what's in the tank, but when these, um, you know, people that are involved in car accidents, IEDs, I mean, they're losing, you know, a piece of their leg, their arm. I mean, it's, it's blood and those extremities are gone. Like you said, you can't replace it. You gotta have something, you gotta stop it bleeding and, and get the blood back in them, so. Okay, um, so what are some uses for donated blood? So, <clears throat> in general, uh, there's three different types of blood components. There's, like, if, so, if somebody donates a unit of blood, you can break that into three different parts. Red blood cells, which carry oxygen. Plasma, which has proteins in it that help stop bleeding. Um, or they can also be used to reverse things like uh, blood thinners. Um, and then there's platelets, uh, which is what actually forms a clot. Um, and you can give all those things individually. So that's when the, the American Red Cross says each individual donation has the ability to save three lives, it's because you can break it into three different components. I see. Okay. Um, and of the, the three components, uh, like what are like some key uses for those? So you mentioned um, that people on chemotherapy uh, or people with um, sickle cell anemia, 
uh, could get transfusions, usually that would be just red blood cells uh, because that's what they need to, to carry oxygen. And that's what's wrong in sickle cell anemia is um, uh, their, their red blood cell is, is not working properly. Um, so that's what you're replacing. And then usually it's the same thing in chemotherapy. That's the thing you need most of the time uh, to replace quickly is because they're just, they don't have enough red blood cells to carry oxygen to make their body work right. Um, like I said, uh, plasma specifically, like a lot of people can probably relate to a grandparent that's on a blood thinner and falls and hits their head or something. Um, those people would often get plasma to reverse the effect of a blood thinner so that they can form a blood clot. And then again, platelets are the same kind of thing. They fall into the same sort of category, but it's, people don't get platelets specifically as much as plasma or, or RBCs, or red blood cells rather. Well, I would totally agree with that. Obviously for us in the medevac community, I mean, we're using it in an emergency capacity. Um, with somebody that's, you know, meets three criteria, basically they've had a major amputation, blood pressure's below 100, systolic, or we have somebody that's, uh, you know, tachycardic above 100. So those are the kind of emergency periods in which we would push a PRBC or a FFP, which is fresh frozen plasma. Okay, um, so when someone's interested in donating blood, are they screened for uh, the three components separately or is it uh, just a kind of overall screening that they go for? Uh, there's, they, they don't get screened for which thing you can donate. Um, there's kind of specific things that are done back in the United States and then there's what we do here. What they're getting screened for when they get screened is, do you weigh enough to safely donate blood? Um, because the more, the more you weigh, the more blood theoretically you have inside of you to donate <coughs> and it's dangerous to take it if you weigh if you don't weigh enough the other thing is infectious disease um, so every person that comes in to our program to get um, screened for it is they're getting screened for HIV um, hepatitis C uh, and a whole bunch of other things all the way down to like Zika virus um, just because that's it's a big hot topic right now um, for people is, you know, are you, am I going to get Zika virus from getting a, a blood donation, that kind of thing. And we send that stuff either to Germany or to um, Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas to get um, that stuff screened. Okay, so the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute says this about people who receive blood. Um, it breaks it down into different categories. 30% uh, is cancer patients, 15% bowel and stomach patients, 15% heart patients, 12% burn victims, 12% accident victims, 6% liver and kidney patients, 5% babies and pregnant women, and 5% hemophiliacs. Um, I, I would relate that to, I guess, everyone, the entire population overall, but are there, what are, the reasons that you see soldiers specifically um, as it relates to receiving blood? So the, the big thing for us that we're looking at is <clears throat> people who are either going to be the most likely thing in Kosovo at, on Camp Bonsteel that I'd be worried about or surrounding areas would be a car accident um, or somebody that's in a burn. The, the thing that scares me the most about Camp Bonsteel is uh, if one of the buildings we're in goes up, then it's just going to be a domino effect, and it would just be hard to stop a fire once it started here. Um, so that's that's what 
scares me, and that's what blood products would probably be used for the most is if there a fire broke out here. And in a combat situation? It would be IED um, or um, gunshot wounds or any other kind of like traumatic injury. Probably less stabbing, but um, gunshot wounds and IEDs, that's what it would be used for the most. Okay, uh, all of that to me as a soldier makes sense, um, but I may be just a little bit ignorant on um, burns. Can you explain how a, a fire can lead to a soldier needing blood? I wouldn't, like, just, you've just never seen anybody burnt. I would never use the word ignorant. Um, but um, it's the fact that people are going into shock um, uh, really, really quickly, and they're also losing a lot of fluid because if you get burnt, you don't think about it, but your biggest organ system on your body is your skin. And your skin keeps infection out and it keeps fluid in. And if your skin's gone because it's burnt off, you're not doing that anymore. So to keep people's blood pressure up and to replace fluids, you gotta, they go through a lot of blood. Okay, I understand. Um, can the both of you, um, can you talk about the Armed Services Blood Program at all? Not a whole lot other than that it's incredibly necessary and that every donation that is made is incredibly valuable. Um, do I understand the inner workings of it? No. I can speak more to what we're doing on Camp Bonsteel, but as a global program, all I can say is uh, it's incredibly valuable and every time you donate blood, you're, you're saving someone's life. You are a lifesaver if you donate a unit of blood. And I would caveat on that as well. I mean, that's, you know, in Afghanistan, you know, we obviously saw the walking blood banks. It's really important. Even if you didn't save a life here in Kosovo with it, you may very well save it somewhere else. I, I don't know all the workings of where the blood goes once it's collected, but I'm sure if there's a need somewhere and they know that it's somewhere, I'm sure it's earmarked to go somewhere if it needs be. So a uh, very important program. Can you talk about the difference between the walking blood bank and the stored whole blood program? Sure. Uh, so. A walking blood bank is kind of exactly what it sounds like. It's just people, because you've got blood inside of you that could be donated. Um, stored whole blood is also kind of exactly what it sounds like. It's just blood that's stored and ready to give. Uh, a walking blood bank <clears throat> would be useful if you already have stored whole blood or blood products that are ready to be donated but you know that a, a mass casualty event um, or uh, a lot of patients coming in needing blood are gonna deplete your supplies and you have time to call in the walking blood bank to replace that. We are never going to, to operate like that just because we're such a small footprint. Um, so we need stored whole blood ready to go. Uh, we also don't have enough personnel to be saving people's lives and collecting blood at the same time. We just don't have enough people in task force men to do that. So we need to have the blood on hand, which is why we decided to do the stored toll blood versus the walking blood bank. Does that make sense? Roger. Would you like to add anything? Well, I mean, just, just for us in the medevac community, obviously the stored product is what we're gonna come and grab to take out on a mission for us. So we run out of that, then obviously we're depending upon that walking blood bank to be able to help us continue to do our mission. 
Roger that. Um, so speaking of Cambon Steel, um, I know that recently um, Cambon Steel or Task Force Med asked for soldiers to come up to um, the medical facility for blood. Uh, can you give us some information about that? Sure. Um, Kosovo is, or Camp on Steel, uh, rather, and uh, the K-4 mission is, um, I would say, not well known in, in the Army in general. Um, and to a large part, uh, we need to be a little bit more self-sustaining, maybe than other missions. And I get that because this isn't Iraq, it's not Afghanistan. <clears throat> Those places need all the blood that they can get because they got stuff going on. Or, or other places in the world that are more kinetic than we are, meaning you know that they're dealing with IEDs and gunshot wounds and whatnot. We get four units of RBCs uh, from Launch Duel and the, and the um, Armed Forces Blood Program. Uh, but if somebody was in a serious burn or there was a, a significant car accident, that would go, we would go through that really, really quickly, like really, really quickly. Um, the other part of that is if there was an accident in another part of Kosovo where we have operations going on, um, like CMLT or Nothing Hill um, or even uh, on areas outside of Regional Command East and our aviation counterparts needed to take blood with them to go and provide life-saving interventions there in the field, that would degrade our ability to save lives if something happened here. Like they would, if they took all four units, we wouldn't have anything left. So that's what we started the um, stored whole blood program uh, was to get people to donate from Camp Bond Steel so that we would have a blood supply so that we could not only support ourselves better, but if uh, our uh, dust off counterparts needed to take blood, we could give it to them without having to worry about our own capabilities afterwards, if that makes sense. Um, and to this point, I think we have 25 donors of O negative and O positive blood. We're still in the process of getting them screened, but as soon as we have all of our screening labs back, we're gonna start collecting units, which will effectively double our capacity. Um, and in addition to having just red blood cells, we will have whole blood, which not only carries oxygen, but will also stop bleeding much faster, if that makes any sense. So those units of whole blood are incredibly valuable. A lot of emergency medicine doctors refer to it as Lazarus fluid. Okay, um, so I know that when the program started that it was specific to O negative, correct, uh, donors uh, of blood type O negative. Um, what's the significance of you all opening it up to O positive as well? We just didn't get enough O negative, people with O negative blood coming in and donating. And I'm not going to force people to, to do that. Or I'm not, well, I don't have that authority anyway, but I'm not going to ask a commander to force their soldiers to donate blood if you don't want to do it. I'm, I, that's, in my mind, that's assault. If I go and, you know, take someone's blood from them without the permission, that's assault. So yeah, I'm not doing that. Uh, but O positive can also be donated, um, but it requires a couple extra um, safety steps and being aware of the fact that you can probably safely only give someone O positive blood really once in their life without 
causing a, a serious uh, allergic reaction. So just a, you got to be a little more cautious with it, but it's still something that we could use to save someone's life. Okay. That's cool. Um, so my next question is, um, is 100% of the blood that is donated by service members uh, given back to service members? There, good question. Uh, so if one of our NATO partners came in that was injured and they needed blood, I'm not gonna withhold that from them. So potentially the answer is, is no, but 100% of that blood would be used to save lives of either U.S. service members or a NATO service member, but service members, service members yeah. yeah. I, I'm not going to refuse, if somebody's coming and dying, they're gonna, whatever, whatever uniform they're wearing, they're gonna get treated. Absolutely. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Um, Sergeant Banta, um, what's the Vampire Project? Uh, and can you tell us about that? Yeah, the, um well, it is, uh, Medevac started this in 2012, 25th Cab. We were a guard unit that fell into them, or the 169th at the time. And our unit uh, was the first unit in June to give blood on a Medevac aircraft out of the Helmand province in uh, Afghanistan. Um, the program was started with uh, Major uh, Pal Dunford, and uh, they were trying to find ways to be a force multiplier and because of all the IEDs that were happening and the loss of life, uh, they wanted to find ways to be able to get these blood products out there to help save lives. So that's when the PRBCs and the FFP with the Golden Hour containers was started. And from June when they first started to RC South, RC West and Afghanistan, they had about 80 transfusions from June to December. And uh, like I said, our, our medevac unit was the first one to, to give it in June in the Helmand province. So uh, we did get to see a lot of impact from that and got to follow a lot of the patient status all the way back to the states that were Americans. So, Can I dovetail yeah. on this? So there's, you know, there's a lot of, in the last, I guess, two decades of conflict, there's a lot of data that suggests that once we get an injured soldier back to a hospital, we're really good at keeping them alive, but the hard part is the transport from the field part to the hospital. Um, <clears throat> and anything we can do to get blood uh, out to the point of injury, like what he's talking about, that's, I mean, it's huge. And frankly, the United States military is a little bit behind on this. Uh, the, the, other nations like the UK, um, they're a little bit, they're a little bit ahead on this, and the data all suggests that this is something that's worth doing. You know, like we we should we should be doing this as like a routine thing. This should this should be what we're doing. So, um, in lieu of knowing an exact number, um, what would you say is the percentage of um, success, if you will, uh, for a soldier receiving blood in the field, um, as opposed to not getting it before he gets to the hospital? Uh, the number, what you're asking for is, it's something called the number needed to treat. Um, and it's the, that, what that means is the number needed to treat to save a life. And now that I've explained that, uh, I don't have an answer for you. Um, I don't know what it is. 
but I know that uh, I do know for a fact that you're more likely to save someone's life if you get blood in them sooner than if you if you wait. I I don't. That's not a that's not a debatable thing. That's just the way it is. Uh, so, Sergeant Vanta, you spoke to um, impact the impact that you've seen the Vampire Project um, take. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, like I said, the biggest thing with that was the fact that uh, these soldiers were able to see that their friends, and most of what we supported were the Marines, that uh, you know their friends were still alive you know, weeks later or maybe earlier in the war they weren't because they weren't getting that life-saving blood because I mean, once your blood has gone out of your body, you're not going to be able to perfuse and obviously uh, you know, pushing oxygen through your body if you don't have that capability to do so. So us being able to get that to them early uh, was a, gr a great benefactor. And like I said, being a force multiplier was huge with them. Of course, you know, with all this, you know, stopping the bleeding, that's, that's key. I think a lot of people can save a life by just stopping and keeping what's in there in there. Uh, like, you know, so the blood products, it's great, but we've got to stop that bleeding. That's, that's key to anything is, uh, you know, when somebody has a traumatic injury is stopping the bleeding. But, um, but yeah, we, we did see some very impactful, um, you know, testimonies from some of the Marines back to their fellow Marines that, hey, had it not been for getting that blood early in that POI, uh, even though 10 minutes uh, doesn't seem like a long time, getting somebody from the time of us getting there to uh, the time of their injury, and that's when that the clock starts, the time that their leg was taken off or arm was taken off, or God forbid, more than that. Yeah. You know, there's just a lot of these guys are receiving horrible injuries, and that could come here in one of these car wrecks here, you, you, you never know, or a helicopter crash, God forbid, here. So, but getting that early, stopping the bleeding and getting those, uh, that life-saving, you know, FFP to be able to help, you know, put a clot in there to be able to help stop that internal bleeding potentially in spaces that we can't put a tourniquet. So those are some other things that we're fighting. We're fighting that clot, you know, just like you talked about the Lazarus fluid, um, blood is, is key, blood is key. So the outcome is, is, I think, is great. Numbers, I don't know that you, I don't know if anybody even tracks those numbers. But they, they do, I just don't have them. And that's fine, that's fine. It's, it's clear that it's, it's a, quite an impact, yeah, huge. Um, so on a, on a larger scale of things, um, did you see the Vampire Project spearhead any or, or be a proponent toward other units adapt? It has, as a matter of fact, it's led to our, what we call a SMOG, which is basically our standard medical operating guidelines. It's an actual protocol for us, for all medevac units in the Army now. So that's spearheaded into that. So that test project, Vampire, and when you hear the word Vampire, that lets the receiving facility, STP, uh, whatever the case may be, whatever you're going to, yeah, knowing very that clearly that communicates blood that he needs has, blood now to go yes. on a on a medevac mission. Right. Yeah. Mm, vampire. 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 Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Vampire lets everybody know that the transfusion for us coming back to the facility has been started, so they know that they need to be getting blood ready to continue that transfusion. Or if we make the call before we leave here that hey we're going to need vampire, they know to be able to yeah. assist us getting yeah. blood to go out on the next medevac mission that we go on here locally. So. Wow, I'll never hear vampire again and not think of that. <laughs> um, it, it definitely is. Um, how how would 
or how is, excuse me, uh, blood transfusion handled in an austere environment, like in the field? Um, because um, you, as an ER doctor, uh, would be a part of that process in the medical facility, correct? Right. Uh, so in the field, um, how does that go on? It involves a lot of the same equipment, um, but it's just not as much technology because you can't take a lot of that with you, especially if you're confined to the space within a helicopter. And also, I mean, you're basically inside a flying washing machine inside of a helicopter. So it's got to be, it, it can't be sensitive equipment. It has to all be like very durable, um, which means you go to kind of more rudimentary stuff, but uh, it's still safe. It just, the key is training your paramedics how to give it. And you don't have to seek them out. You just, they'll come to you. Um, these guys, they, they want to know um, how to do it. You know, they, it's like, how do I save lives? That's, that's their whole job. They love it. They, they're all about it. So. Sergeant, can you talk about some of that training? Yeah, for us, I mean, we try to quarterly, you know, once we actually implement a blood program, we have the product available. We have the medical director that's there to be able to facilitate that training. Um, like obviously here with the lab, we're continuing to work to be able to strive to make sure that we meet protocol to be able to meet all the requirements that are required to be able to give that. Like you said, things are very elementary for us when we're, you know, putting uh, that into a patient. You know, the biggest thing for us is, you know, uh, sterile procedures as much as possible, but we're probably not as focused on that as much as we are trying to get that blood and to be able to be alive. But, you know, we have blood warmers on board the aircraft to be able to help you know, warm that product prior to putting it in them. But really no different than putting IV fluid in for us. It's just a different container. We just have to look out for some other, you know, conditions. They may have a reaction to the blood, but other than that, we should see an uptake and uh, a response by the patient relatively quickly if, 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 if we're gonna see it work. Uh, so, and for us, uh, we normally have uh, one medic and one crew chief in the back of our aircraft. Uh, but here we, and, and we've seen in Afghanistan and Iraq, we try to keep two uh, paramedics in the back because it can get overwhelming with one patient that's in a uh, situation can, can get overwhelming in the ER. I can yes. only imagine if you're yes. back in the helicopter. So there's a lot of moving pieces. And plus, while you're doing that, we're always constantly reassessing. So in that 10 minutes, you know, we may reassess that patient several times. So you gotta make sure that, you know, the, the fluid that we're putting in via the blood and we're not busting a clot and we're having to go back and, and try to chase down something that we just, you know, stop some bleeding on. So there's a lot of moving pieces. It's not just putting the blood in there. It's going to stay in the container. So. Roger that. Um, what happens if there is not enough blood donated by service members? I mean, there's an obvious answer, right. but I, I would like you to, you know, speak to it. It's... It's basically if, if something, if the stuff hits the fan and somebody's dying and we don't have enough blood, um, hopefully we can evacuate them in time <clears throat> to get them to another hospital that does. And we there's a couple local national hospitals here in Kosovo that are really good, um, but it will still take them time to get spun up. So the, the feared outcome is that if we're not prepared with enough blood products, then people will die. That's... I mean, it's, that's the black and white. That is the black and white. Um, is there anything that either of you want to add about the topic? Just uh, 
give blood. I mean, that's yeah. it's it's important. Yeah. That that is truly, like you said, you could save up to three lives with just your one donation. And so. just to say thank you to all the people that have volunteered to donate blood. Um, and as soon as you give that unit, uh, you've got a shirt waiting for you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is a call to action, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, service members and civilians alike, get out, give blood, save a life. Um, if you are interested in resources um, to get more information about blood drive or blood services, uh, the American Red Cross Blood Services is redcrossblood.org. The National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute is NHLBI dot nih dot gov and the armed services blood program can be found at militaryblood.dod.mil. I am Specialist Linwood Thomas and this has been a Rock or Something podcast.